and welcome to What China Wants. My name's Stuart Patterson. Today, I'm joined by Sam Olson, the co-founder of the Evenstar Institute, and Dr. William Matthews, uh, another co-founder of the Evenstar Institute. And we're going to be talking today about China's structural influence in Southeast Asia. Sam, let, let me come to you first. The Evenstar Institute has this wonderful report out on Chinese structural influence in Southeast Asia. What is structural influence and why is Southeast Asia important? Well, thanks, Joe. It feels a bit weird being interrogated by you on the other side of the desk, so to speak. But um, the point is, is that we, as you know, have been putting together a report on Southeast Asia for the last six months using the influence models that we've created for the Evenstar Institute, which is the think tank that sort of what China wants fits into. And, and those those models come about after many years of analysis as, as to what actually influence is. We started thinking about this a long time ago because there didn't seem to be a proper analysis undertaken about what China was actually doing in the world. And there was lots of conjecture, but there was no real data. So we thought, hmm, we can put something together uh, in a model which would be a quantitative basis for understanding uh, exactly what China was doing in country A, B or C. And on that, we have a qualitative layer as well, which I might add is powered in part by our technology partner, Adaga, the AI platform, uh, who we do a lot of work with. So Adaga has, has helped us to sort of come up with a, a lot of the insights into this, as well as our huge quantitative databases of, of what China is doing across a number of things from trade and investment to academia to critical national infrastructure ownership to defense and security, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that is brought together into, into this report uh, on China's influence in Southeast Asia. And the question is, why did we look at Southeast Asia? Well, that region is just vital for the whole world. It's, uh, it's big in itself. It's about 680-ish million people, which is about one and a half times the size of the EU and double the size of America. But it's uh, also um, got uh, huge amounts of resources, whether it's fish in the South China Sea, mineral resources, 12% of the rare earths that we need are processed in Malaysia, for example. But it's geographically vital as well, because it's the gateway to China. And it's the home of many uh, alliances with the UK and the US and Australia and other countries in the West. For example, Thailand and Philippines are treaty allies of America. Brunei is where a lot of British Army soldiers do their training. And uh, we've got strong connections, historical connections through the Commonwealth, uh, and through increased interaction through the ASEAN dialogue partnership that we've done in recent years. So the region of Southeast Asia is vital and it's really good to be able to see exactly what China's influence is there for the West to sort of understand where they stand uh, with regard to their, their own influence in, in the region. Uh, William, you are in some ways uh, the brains behind the methodology and the process of, of analysing influence. So if I could come to you and just just ask you, could you just talk our listeners through the way that you approach structural influence and, and um, how you set about analysing it? Uh, sure. So our concept of structural influence essentially refers to the capacity of a country, in this case China, to bend another country to its will based on its ability to compromise that country's autonomous decision-making. And the way that we approach this is to think about nine what we call strands, which are basically domains of a country's activity in which China is able to establish influence. So those includes things like 
economics and finance, politics, defence and security, critical national infrastructure, technology and telecoms, and so on. The, the way that we look at this is we draw on our huge quantitative database and those qualitative assessments to basically derive a quantitative metric for influence over each strand. So for that, we will be looking at things, for example, in, in terms of politics, things like number of diplomatic engagements, level of united front activity in the country, and so on. And thinking about what that means for the targeted country's exposure to Chinese influence, how asymmetrical the relationship is, and the extent to which that country is dependent on China within that strand. And then we derive scores for the country overall, and that's done basically using a weighting system where we think about how influence in each of those strands is able to compromise that country's overall autonomy. And that allows us basically to trace the development of China's influence over time as well and compare it across countries, which is sort of one of the things that we've done in this report. And so, Sam, when you look at these various strands, are some of them more important than others? Do some of them lead and others lag? Um, and how can you sort of spot a rising trend of influence, be it from China or any other country for that matter? So the most important thing to understand is that some strands are more important than others. And um, the ones that are most important are those that bake in the longest term and the most important influence. And, and that, to be honest, is the economy and politics. But there is another one as well, which is really vital to talk about, which is digital infrastructure. Because one of the things that came out very vividly in this report is that, of course, China is massively important economically. I mean, China is massively important economically around the world. The largest trade partner with 140 countries, 30% of global manufacturing, and so on and so on. But within Southeast Asia, it has really pushed out America as the number one trading partner to quite a degree. And although its FDI doesn't fit in as much as America's, the overall economic relationship is stronger with, with China. What became more interesting was the spread of Chinese digital infrastructure in the region, which is obviously very closely linked to the economic development. And what we mean by digital infrastructure is 5G networks for mobiles, undersea cables for broadband connectivity, space. So, for example, using Beidou, which is the Chinese GPS equivalent rather than GPS, which many countries are doing from everything from transportation to agriculture to security, like facial recognition and smart cities and stuff. All of those things come together uh, under the banner of digital infrastructure. And the reason that that's so important for influence is because once you've spent the billions and billions putting it in, it's very difficult, both in terms of actually getting it out of the ground, but in terms of cost and political will to replace it. And as China builds out the digital infrastructure, I said 5G, space, etc., then lots of other things in the modern economy and a modern society fit around that, which gives China a long-term ownership, or dominance at least, of many of the aspects of, of the modern economy. So thanks, Sam. And so, uh, William, I mean, when you're looking at Southeast Asia, obviously our listeners will immediately observe there are some idiosyncratic features of the region that lend themselves to Chinese influence, its geography, the fact that it's on China's doorstep, but also, you know, large ethnically Chinese populations in uh, most of the countries, if not all of them. 
and particularly the business elites in in those countries tend to be of of Chinese ethnicity. To what extent is Southeast Asia, in your view, a sort of special case in terms of the degree to which Chinese influence is received or, or, or the ease with which China can penetrate? It's an interesting question. I mean, there's sort of two, two dimensions there that link into that, which I think do make Southeast Asia a special case. One is um, something that and this is sort of reflected in the patterns of influence that we've noted in the report is that China's influence tends to be greater on mainland Southeast Asia than maritime Southeast Asia. And uh, in part, uh, this is due precisely to sort of issues of geographic proximity, including, for example, China's effective um, control over the Mekong River through dams. And this gives it a high degree of potential influence over the five states downstream. So uh, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, and Myanmar, simply because China then has the potential capacity to influence things like water supply. But this also includes things like, you know, sort of overland access into China and from China and so on. In terms of the region's ethnic uh, Chinese population, this is absolutely something that Beijing targets through um, the activity of its United Front Working Group. And what, what the United Front Working Group attempts to do is essentially target ethnic Chinese business elites um, in the region with a view to trying to get them to sort of reorient more in line with their interests than in the interests of their own countries. Now, this is not always successful. It's much more successful in cases where you have ethnically Chinese business elites who are recent, relatively recent migrants from the People's Republic of China. Beijing has been less successful in cultivating it where you have sort of older ethnic Chinese populations who don't necessarily feel particularly sort of uh, warmly towards the People's Republic. But in some countries, this has been particularly effective. Thailand is an interesting case where there is um, United Front sort of penetration at very high levels of um, the economic and political elite in the country to a point where that is actually having an impact on sort of internal debate in Thailand as to where the country should be orienting itself between China and, and the West. However, you know, it's important to note that also we see other countries like Vietnam, which have taken a very active stance against allowing any kind of activity like that to operate in the country. So it can be a very important vector for China's influence, but it depends a lot on the sort of the response of the country being targeted. Uh, that's really interesting. And let's come on to Thailand in a moment, because obviously, clearly, it's a very important sort of swing state in the region. But Sam, one of the conclusions of the report is that Laos and Cambodia are effectively client states. I mean, you don't go quite that far necessarily in, in labelling them as such. But perhaps you could just talk us through how that has happened and how deep China's influence over those two countries is. Yeah, so Laos and Cambodia have, over the last 10 years, gone from being autonomous in their decision-making for the majority to being very heavily dependent on China. And China's influence is economic, so a huge amount of the FDI and trade that both countries have with the rest of the world is actually with China. For example, in Cambodia, a large part of the roads and the infrastructure has been built by China, and in, in Laos too, the high-speed railway has been built by China. And the dams that now provide 80% of the export earnings for Laos through the electricity they generate, uh, that was all built by China as well. 
So not only economically uh, is China dominant, but militarily they provide a lot of the weaponry now. Um, politically, huge connections between Laos and Cambodia and China. And of course, as William said, that there's a reliance on the Mekong River, which China can now basically cut off because of its 11 upstream dams. So those two countries, their autonomy is determined by, by China. And a good example of that would be uh, in 2019 when Cambodia was asked, or in fact ordered by China to stop online gambling, which huge numbers, about 700,000 we think, of Chinese people have moved into Cambodia in recent years to indulge in. And that was providing an enormous amount of tax take to the Cambodian government, which is one of the poorest countries in Asia. And China told them to switch off their uh, online gambling, which they did, obviously depriving them of quite a lot of tax revenue. But we know that Cambodia really doesn't have a leg to stand on and it wants to stand up to China simply because of the economic impact that China can have on the country. Uh, and just a, a final stat on that is two-thirds of Cambodia's exports come from governments, but two-thirds of the inputs into the government industry come from China. So just like Laos is dependent on the water uh, from China for its uh, exports, Cambodia is dependent on China for the inputs into its main exports as well. But I want to just build on something that uh, William was saying a second ago about the United Front. The United Front are also very active in those two countries. We know this because the United Front actually publicises an awful lot of what they're doing online in Chinese, which we monitor. And another country uh, which we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure, is, is Brunei, where the United Front have been very active too. So, 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 William, I mean, our listeners are probably thinking, well, hold on, isn't it quite natural that China should have a significant amount of influence in these countries, given its size, the relative size of, of its self vis-a-vis these Southeast Asian nations? I, I suppose the question is really, to what extent is structural influence something that just happens naturally through international relations between two countries? And to what extent is it cultivated? And to what extent can these Southeast Asians uh, countries enjoy some sort of agency themselves over the level of influence that outside powers gather in their societies? Sure. So obviously, I mean, part of it, naturally, you know, China is a huge economic power right next to Southeast Asia. So of course, it is going to have, you know, one would expect it to have major influence in, in the countries of Southeast Asia. To a significant extent, that's inevitable, if you like. There are other dimensions, like we've been talking about with the United Front activity, which are sort of wholly targeted and deliberate cultivation. I think even though in, in terms of things like um, China's economic relationship with the region, we do see, though, that there are patterns of activity there where China is clearly seeking to it's hard to know whether or not the deliberate intent is to create structural influence or however they sort of conceive of it, but there is definite deliberate targeting of certain areas and sectors uh, with a view to advancing China's interests. So this includes, for example, investing in things like critical strategic resource production and things like that and things like digital infrastructure. Digital infrastructure does seem to be part of something which is a much more sort of deliberate attempt to cultivate influence, and that relates to things like 
China's pushing of the setting of Chinese technical standards and using those as a basis for things like digital infrastructure, critical national infrastructure development. And those are things which have the potential to lock in China's influence through things like the need for continued maintenance, upgrades and so on. And like Sam talked about earlier, the difficulty in switching to alternatives. But of course, these countries all have agency themselves. And we've identified in, in the report sort of various ways in which countries do sort of push back or are able to resist China's influence. In some cases, these come from sort of just the sort of the country's existing sort of economic situation. So Indonesia, for example, as the largest economy in, in Southeast Asia, is also the sort of the country in Southeast Asia, which really has a sort of very diverse economy, relies on a very wide range of trade partners and so on. And that that kind of diversification of economic ties correlates with sort of a lower degree of China's ability to cultivate influence. Vietnam is another good example of that. Vietnam has cultivated closer economic ties with Japan and South Korea. And that also means that it is then inevitably less dependent on China. So, William, can I just come in there? Because I think it's important to talk about this agency. Some of the critics of China's influence and some of the critics of America's influence in the region and, in fact, the world say that by discussing things from a point of view of China or America, you are removing agency from the countries affected. And I think it's really important to note that in our research for Southeast Asia, one of the things that comes across very well is the fact that these countries do have agency massive agency, in fact, and right up until the point where they end up in China's orbit, in which case their autonomy is somewhat reduced. And that is especially the case for Laos and, and Cambodia. But how did Laos and Cambodia get there? Well, they made decisions which were either for the best of the country or because of elite capture, which ended up resulting in those two countries having such great ties to China that they can't really operate without them. And the United Front does help to encourage the decision-making, which might not necessarily be in the best interest of that country, but it is a decision made, and that is a reflection of the agency. And, and just going back to Brunei, I think one of the things that we've noted is that whilst Brunei retains a very strong, close connection with the UK uh, and the West uh, over its military side, yeah, as I mentioned, the, the British have got a base there. One of the things that's become clear in the last few years is that the economic side of Brunei's relationship with the outside world has been completely dominated by China. They've built a new refinery there, PMB refinery, which is absolutely massive. To the extent that our analysis shows it's likely this will completely change the pattern of Brunei's economic engagement with the rest of the world simply because China now dominates the natural resources, which in turn dominate the exports of Brunei. And the United Front actually publicised the fact that the people, United Front people working on that refinery, the ones that helped to get it built, were given a public award by the United Front to reflect their, their service to, to China. So, yes, there is agency, but this agency within these countries is being helped along by Chinese efforts at the uh, obvious level and at the perhaps less obvious level as well. Uh, and, and Sam, actually, maybe that's a point we ought to mention here. Is there a big difference in the level of Chinese influence between the democratic states within the ASEAN bloc and the non-democratic states within the ASEAN bloc? 
Great question, Stuart. William, what, what's your thoughts on this? So, I, I mean, I think we do see some differences there, but I would also caution against necessarily thinking that there's necessarily a clear-cut line. So, for example, two countries that we focus on in the reporters being notably resilient to China's influence are the Philippines, on the one hand, and Vietnam, on the other. Now, in the case of Vietnam, a lot of that sort of resistance to China's influence comes from you know, a long-standing history of difficult relations between the two countries. Yeah? In the case of the Philippines, though, the Philippines being democratic has had an impact. I mean, we see you know, across many countries in Southeast Asia sort of not necessarily a particularly favourable public opinion of China and its actions in Southeast Asia. Now, in a country like the Philippines, where there's a high level of civic engagement, that has an effect because it means even when you know the Philippines under Duterte, for example, Duterte tried to cultivate much closer ties with China, but in a context where you also have high levels of popular political engagement and an unfavorable opinion of China's activities, that is inevitably something that elected leaders are going to have to take into account and which will therefore sort of impact on the capacity of that country to counter China's influence and potentially hinder the ability of China to establish that influence in the first place. Sam, let's talk about Thailand, because obviously Thailand was a democracy, and then we had the military coup. And in many ways, it's kind of pivotal to the region, isn't it? And which way Thailand goes or what balance Thailand chooses to strike will have quite a broad ramification for the whole of ASEAN, won't it? Yes, Thailand is one of the most important countries in in Southeast Asia and Asia as a whole. It has got a large population. It's got a thriving economy, which is vital to the international supply chain for its factories and its components, etc. And geographically, uh, very importantly situated at the heart of Southeast Asia's mainland. And so whatever Thailand does is going to have an impact on the region and of the continent as a whole. And since basically the, the Cold War, America and Thailand have been very close. Thailand is one of the few treaty allies of America, and it is a country that has seen huge amounts of international Western support and investment. But in 2014, there was a coup. Military gently took over. And because of that, the Americans decided to pull some of their support for Thailand, which included stopping, for example, the young officers going to West Point Military Academy in America. There was an awful lot of anger by the military junta, and they felt betrayed by the Americans. And since then, China and Thailand have becoming a lot closer. And we see that in a number of ways. First of all, trade continues to increase. China is building Thailand digital infrastructure. China and Thailand are creating very strong scientific relationship. For example, China recently gave Thailand one of its own nuclear fusion reactors as an experiment and set up a think tank there on science and technology. But also they have become very close in terms of military engagement. And Thailand is one of the only countries in Southeast Asia which has actively increased at a significant level its arms from China. And it has also done an awful lot of joint exercises with China too. That's not to say they're not still doing joint exercises with America, they are. But the fact that they do it with China as well is is, is problematic for Washington. And, And what this means is that China's influence in Thailand is increasing uh, rapidly and has done over the last uh, sort of, well, nine years now. 
if China does manage to get Thailand to flip away from being a, a, an ally of America to being an ally of China, then that would cause very big headache for America and Southeast Asia. Sam, obviously, there is a huge amount of detail in this report, um, and we've only really scratched the surface in this uh, discussion. If our listeners want to get hold of the report, where can they get hold of it? Well, it's going to be uh, published on our website, which is the evenstarinstitute.com. But if you are a member of the China Waters community, we'll also send you a copy on the newsletter there very soon. But in summary, I think this is just a fantastic opportunity to show off our influence models and to show how powerful they are uh, and and how broad ranging they are as well. Uh, And so you'll be looking forward to talking to us soon about some other research you're doing in different parts of the world on China's influence and how that compares to uh, the influence of other countries like America, the UK and potentially India as well. Uh, William Matthews and Sam Olson, thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Jed. Thanks.